Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Last year, Najib Amini went to a place where renewable energy is born. A place the U.S. government seems to think of as a source of green power. But this place, it was not covered in solar panels or dotted with windmills. Not by a long shot. I just love one of the nicknames for this site. It was called the Disney World of Trash. So... Did they give you mouse ears? (laughs) I guess it would be rat ears, really. Didn't have mouse ears, but did walk around with a yellow construction hat type of thing. This Disneyland of trash is in Palm Beach County, Florida. Ten stories of trash sorting and eventual trash burning. This place is basically a huge incinerator. Najib was there for his job at the Center for Investigative Reporting. It starts with, like, you know, these dump trucks that are just reversing back into this giant pit, this huge cavernous pit, and just, like, tons and tons and tons of garbage are just being piled up. And then these claws come down to scoop up as much as nine tons of rotten food, diapers, construction debris, takeout containers. And it goes down the chute, eventually it kind of gets sorted, and then it goes into this furnace. And then actually seeing this trash being lit on fire... Not even seeing, like, this physical feeling of the heat that's coming off just, like, the little port view. This is, I'm like, this is wild. This is nuts. It's the steam generated by these fires that makes this place a hub for renewable power. The steam spins a turbine. It can generate electricity for up to 45,000 homes. It's enough that this trash pit is able to make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year selling something called renewable energy certificates, or RECs. All kinds of people buy these things, because buying them means you can say you're supporting the environment. So burning trash like this, it's creating energy. Is it green energy? So that's a very good question. And this technically would be considered green, but do you think of a trash incinerator as renewable energy? Because I don't. Today on the show, the very strange story of how this trash incinerator became a source of green energy and the weird marketplace that is sustaining operations like this. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. 
Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. To understand what's happening at this Palm Beach facility and why it's important, I feel like we have to explain how what happens in Florida is actually impacting everyone else in the U.S., which means explaining how the owners of this trash incinerator have been commodifying what they do turning burnt trash into something called RECs. That stands for Renewable Energy Certificate. What is a Renewable Energy Certificate? It's basically exactly that. It's just a certificate. It's just like a piece of paper that says, congratulations, you are now the owner of one green megawatt hour of electricity. What can you do with that paper? You can't use that certificate or that piece of paper to physically power your apartment or your house But what you can do is say, hey, I can offset my electricity use with renewable energy. This is complicated. So let me give you an example. Let's say a company in Pennsylvania plugs into the local power grid and uses 30 megawatt hours of electricity a year. That is probably coming primarily from coal. But if that company bought 30 megawatt hours worth of renewable credits from a wind farm in California... They could claim to be a pollution-free business. If that sounds a little suspicious to you, Najib, he doesn't disagree. Right. Like, you can be a business, you can be an individual and say, hey, I'm doing my part. I really care about the environment. I've offset my electricity use. I've bought Rex. And then if the follow-up question is, cool, can I see your solar panels or uh, your windmills or how'd you do it? And be like, oh, let me show you these certificates. So what was the original idea here when someone came up with the idea of a renewable energy certificate? So one of the ways to understand this is to go back to the mid-90s. And back then, renewable energy wasn't as, say, popular or as top of mind as it is now. And what that actually translates to is it costs more money to not only you know produce or invest or make a renewable energy site, but also to sell that renewable energy. So I can buy coal, I can buy natural gas, that's relatively cheap. But back then in the mid-90s, to buy energy, like a megawatt hour of wind or solar, it's far more expensive. And so to help incentivize or level out the market in a way, the this tool was invented as a way to uh, provide money, as a way to entice people to go into the renewable energy space. So for example, I'm a wind farm and I'm generating my electricity for the year. But in addition to generating my electricity for the year, 
I'm also generating these renewable energy certificates. So not only can I sell my electricity, I can also now sell these certificates and make more money. So it's a quick infusion of cash for an industry that's just getting up on its feet. Right, 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 right. What kind of businesses were buying wrecks? Like I know in some of your reporting, your colleagues spoke to a guy who worked at a ski resort who was like, oh, I can buy wrecks and I can make the whole ski resort look green. So uh, we spoke to the sustainability director of one ski company who for just a fraction of their uh, of their budget, they were able to offset their entire operation. We're talking about a, a massive ski campus, so to speak. They have, you know, ski lifts, different buildings, the whole nine. If they were to try and, you know, do this properly by putting in solar panels or building lead certified buildings, things of the sort, this is easily something that would go into the millions and millions of dollars. But for them, for, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars, they were able to make the claim that they were offsetting their electricity use by buying wrecks. And so eventually, it wasn't just, you know, ski companies in Colorado, but other companies, um, big name companies, were even looking into this. And this was like mid-2000s or so, where it kind of became corporate practice, where corporations were taking their own responsibility and trying to do their part. But yeah, big name companies for a time were buying wrecks. You might be wondering how anyone could possibly make the case that burning trash counts as creating renewable energy. The short version is, when it comes to trash, there's always more where that came from, which does, technically speaking, make it a renewable resource. The thing is, facilities like that trash incinerator in Palm Beach, they emit tons of carbon dioxide each year. And officials will argue that the trash they're burning would release more methane if it was sitting in a landfill. But that still doesn't make incinerating it a clean source of energy. Here's the thing, right? You can have that landfill versus incinerator debate. Sure. What makes this incinerator special, though, is this is a site that is emitting greenhouse gases, but also selling renewable energy certificates. So if I'm buying this renewable energy certificate, I basically can make the claim that I'm offsetting my electricity use. I'm doing my part in trying to reach net zero goals or doing my part around climate sustainability. Now, if I'm buying these wrecks from this trash site that's still emitting greenhouse gases, how does that add up? Right. Like, I think what you're saying is like, at best, a wreck is wasteful and that you're sending some money to this like solar farm or wind facility where it's like, I guess you're like kind of giving them a tip, like you're giving them some extra money to be like, go you, you're doing a great thing. And you get to say you're you're going green or whatever. And that's wasteful. But then there's also these dirtier wrecks where it's not just wasteful. It's also, you know, there, there are potential downstream hazards of what's happening here. And, and this is funding that. Right. At a very local level, there's this concern over what's being emitted in the air. But then... In addition to that, it's also still producing greenhouse gases. From your reporting, it sounds like big businesses that were initially interested in wrecks, they eventually kind of turned up their noses at them, at least some of them. What happened? Like, when did, when did businesses start to 
question what was happening here. In our reporting, we spoke to Auden Schendler, who was the uh, sustainability director at Aspen Skiing Company. And he was one of the first or one of the early people to kind of blow the whistle on Rex. I mean, he was in a position where he bought tens of thousands of Rex at his company. He was getting awards from the EPA. Everyone was kind of like patting him on the back. Hey, you did the, you did a good job. You're making the company look good. And he's like, but he had this kind of creeping feeling to be like, wait a minute, what did I just do? I don't know if any of this makes sense. I don't know if this is doing what it says it's doing. And he kind of checked the tires. He you know, spoke to a few people, that, you know, some of his peers, and realized this is all kind of a sham. Like, what did I just do? And so he eventually had to walk it back and, you know, convinced his his company to, you know, get off the the premise of Rex. Now, that's one individual case. At the same time, you also had study after study after study that kind of refuted the idea of of the wreck. There have been, you know, a number of studies that have ultimately said the wreck has not led to the creation of any significant renewable energy. For example, we spoke to one carbon accounting expert who basically said there's no empirical data to back up this idea that the wreck has led to more renewable energy. And so what that leaves you with is just an accounting tool that says, hey, you're doing your part, but in physicality, nothing has changed. So if big companies aren't so into wrecks anymore, why is there still a market for them? Like, who's buying these things? Well, it turns out it's kind of a big player. It's it's the federal government that's still purchasing thousands and thousands and thousands of wrecks. And it's kind of puzzling when you consider everything that's going on. After the break, how the U.S. government got tied up in all this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket? 
So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. How did the federal government start using RECs in the first place? Can you just lay out how the incentives worked and and why the feds started buying these things up? So in 2005, an energy bill gets signed and it goes into law and it requires the federal government to get some of its electricity from renewable sources. Seems like a good idea. Right. And at the time, that target was just 3%. So government only needed to get 3% of its electricity from renewable sources. In 2013, that was pushed up to 7.5%. That requirement hasn't been updated despite the fact that like global emissions uh, have been going up, going up, going up. So now government agencies need to have 7.5% of its electricity come from renewable sources. A way to do that, a way to kind of reach that goal outside of installing solar panels or things of the sort is to purchase a REC. And so government agencies have been purchasing these RECs to sort of meet this requirement. So RECs are the easy way out. It's it's an easy way out that it seems time and time and again has been used. And they've said that they've exceeded that target and they're closer to, I believe, around maybe north of 10% or somewhere around that figure. But tremendous kudos to my reporting partner, Will Evans, who FOIA'd the government and looked through the numbers and basically... I mean, there's other kind of accounting metrics that go into this as well, where if you install a solar panel on a a military base, you can count that twice because it's on federal land. It gets super wonky. But between the double counting and the use of RECs, there's a huge gap between them hitting their target and what they're actually using in terms of renewable energy. And so the most recent numbers show that the government is only using about 3% renewable energy. If you take out the double counting and the RECs, again, that's 3% renewable energy. Hmm. That's less than half of their target. And while most of the RECs were from wind power, a quarter of them were from stuff like that incinerator. 13% of all renewable energy certificates the government bought in 2022 to look green came from a Florida trash incinerator. That single trash incinerator. Right. Why... Would they buy from the trash incinerator? Like, why not just put up the solar panels? Just because it's expensive? You know, there are expensive wrecks and there are cheap wrecks. It just turns out that why would you buy an expensive wreck when you can buy a cheap wreck and effectively make the same claim, which is, hey, I'm offsetting my electricity use. I'm doing the renewable thing. I'm doing my part. It's just like, it's kind of stunning after everything you've said that it's like this, the federal government's still buying these things. It is because, like, take this administration. President Biden, he campaigned a lot on climate change and hitting certain goals, whether it's around net zero or trying to make sure that if he was elected, climate change would be taken seriously. And there's a lot to applaud with the Inflation Reduction Act in terms of what was able to be passed in that bill. But Take a step back and remember, we were just talking about that Florida trash incinerator. This is a Florida trash incinerator that is producing greenhouse gases, but is also selling renewable energy certificates. That the federal government is buying. Right. One of the more interesting tidbits that came out of, you know, again, this is like a lot of like Will's, Will Evans, my uh, reporting partner. There's the National Institutes of Health 
which bought Rex from that Florida trash incinerator in order to label one of its laboratories a, quote, net zero energy campus. Which, again, it's just like, wait, you're just like, you're just like, I just don't get it. Like, and granted, you know, Rex are a small piece of this very large convoluted pie. It's, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think it's fair to say because they're doing this on Rex, they're missing the mark on everything. But the fact that they are still moving in this direction with Rex is extremely questionable and puzzling and confusing and at least merits some kind of response or clarification as to why this is still continuing. The fact is, the wrecks the federal agencies are buying are cheap. So the government is not spending very much money on wrecks in total. But Najib says, the budget line is not really the point. The true cost of wrecks is the missed opportunity they represent. One way to contextualize this is it's the federal government, right? Single largest property owner in the U.S. So it's a lot of buildings. It's a lot of electricity needed to power those buildings. And we're not just talking in a few states. This is all across the country. And so it's a huge consumer of electricity. But I don't think this is a dollars and cents problem. I think this is a time problem. Agencies are purchasing these wrecks to meet a mandate that says we're using X percent we're we're meeting our renewable energy goals. That's part of a larger effort to try and tackle climate change or reach a net zero goal, at least under this administration. Wrecks are, if anything, a band-aid that isn't even sticking on. It's not even a solution that's working if you go based on studies or what other industry experts have, you know, come out with. And yet the federal government is still purchasing these wrecks while going about and saying we're reaching our goals. We're not not even reaching, we're exceeding our goals. We're meeting our targets. And, you know, you can harp about the money being spent, but effectively it's the time that's being wasted. Is this a solution? Or is this something that kind of is just a waste of time? Time that is crucial, especially when, you know, you look at that 1.5 degree Celsius mark that, you know, everyone is, you know, has their eyes glued to. And I think it's hard to measure that. It's hard to know, maybe if you didn't use Rex and you instead focus on this other thing, you would have saved this percent or you would have done this thing. But I do think it is a, it's a, it's a value of time. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is the government could be leading here and it doesn't feel like they are. I mean, it's not even leading at this point. Like, this is how many years ago has it been debunked? And so it's not even as in, in a, this like dire of a position for like, oh, this is a tough decision to make. This is a decision that has already been made. And yet the federal government is acting in contrast to that. What could they be doing instead? Like, what are the things you imagine they could be doing instead of buying these pieces of paper saying we're. We, we're dealing with clean energy. So we did talk to an academic and, and raise this question. And I mean, it, again, the federal government's carbon footprint is pretty large. It's in fact, you know, larger than companies like Amazon or Walmart. And if you ask that question, like, what could the government do instead? I mean, it could be sm- you know, things like putting solar panels on roofs or parking lots or, 
you know, investment of chargeable port stations for cars or things of the sort. These other kinds of investments, as opposed to just purchasing these wrecks, let alone purchasing wrecks from a garbage incinerator. It sounds a lot more expensive than purchasing wrecks from a garbage incinerator, though. I mean, it's climate change, though, right? Do you have a choice? Najib, I'm really grateful for your reporting and your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. Najib Amini is a producer for Reveal, the podcast from the Center for Investigative Reporting. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter or whatever we're calling it these days. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.